Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. You know I'm a big fan of enjoying life while still being smart financially. That's why I love ButcherBox. I can get a variety of high-quality meat, seafood, chicken, and pork at an amazing value, all with exclusive member deals delivered to my door with free shipping always. One thing I just never wanted to cut out of my spending plan is eating good food. And with ButcherBox, I don't have to, and neither do you. Where else can you get free protein for a whole year? Yes, you heard that right. One of my favorite go-to dinners is a salmon bowl. I'm not even a huge salmon lover, but ButcherBox's wild-caught salmon is Oh, so good. I make a nice little marinade, saute some veggies, cook the salmon, and throw in some weiss. And it is an amazing dinner. If you want to take less trips to the grocery store and always have prepared meat in the freezer for a lot less money, you need ButcherBox in your life. Sign up at butcherbox.com etm and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash etm. It's true. We have behavioral traps that keep us in our money mindset. We rationalize, we compare, and we make judgments when it comes to our money. Are those traps keeping you trapped or are they actually moving you closer to your money goals? Millennial Money with Shauna Compton Game. It will expand your brain. Our podcast guest today, Jeff Kreisler, says, beware what's happening with your money choices so you can make the choice rather than the choice being made for you. That's a powerful concept if you sit and really think about it. 
How many money buying decisions do you make without consciously having a thought process around it? I make a ton of those. I think that's pretty universal. I want it. Society or a retailer tells me I should have it. So I push the button without a pause. But do I need this? If I buy this, what goal am I sacrificing? What value am I placing on this thing? There's no judgment here because I'm in the same boat you are trying to figure this all out. So this episode is just some food for thought for you and for me. But Jeff's new book, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter was one of the best reads I've read this year. And I've read it two times now from front to back. So I had to know, what are the hidden forces that secretly drive our choices around money? Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm excited to have you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to start out, we're talking about the mindset around money, which is certainly a topic I'm really passionate about. I wanted to ask you, what are those hidden forces that, as you say, secretly drive our choices around money? Well, there are a ton of different forces, and I'll, I'll give you sort of my, my top few. But the real underlying issue is that all of us are unable to really assess the value of any financial choice. And ultimately, when we're making a decision, we weigh the different values of you know buying something or not. But assessing the value of something is, is a real challenge. Like, well, what do we do? Um, you know, traditional economics says you're supposed to think about the opportunity costs, and I don't want to give your listeners a flashback to Econ 101, <laughs> but the basic idea is you think, oh, what else could I do with this money now or any time in the future? But that's a lot to consider, right? It's almost impossible the way that people just don't do that. So they go for like the shortcuts, and sometimes those shortcuts are like, oh, I bought – you know, every day I buy a $5 latte, so that must be the right decision. Um, or, you know, all my friends are spending, you know, this much money on whatever their winter jackets or, or on a gym membership. So I must do. So we don't really assess the value ourselves. We go for shortcuts. And what we talk about in the book um, and what a lot of others talk about is what are these shortcuts? What are these behavioral principles or nudges or heuristics or traps? I mean, people may have heard all these terms. Um, and that's basically what they are, is they're, they're little shortcuts. So when we can't figure out value, um, we use other ways of doing it. Um, some of the ones that I think are, are the most uh, prevalent and the most impactful, um, you know, just uh, the top one is something called relativity. Um, and it is the idea that uh, we will compare uh, the price of something or, or to another uh, price in order to decide if if we should buy it. Let me be a little more clear. Um, yeah. People will buy people will buy items on sale that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise buy. Like you'll buy a sixty dollars sweater that was marked down from a hundred dollars more often than you'll buy just a sixty dollars sweater, because in your mind you go, oh, wow, compared to this hundred dollars sweater, this sixty dollars sweater is a great deal. It's a great value. It should be what I buy. Whereas just that sixty dollars sweater, you have no way of knowing, you know, if that's a good price or not. Um, and that's sort of why one of the main reasons why people fall for sale prices is because we make this imaginary comparison to the regular price, quote unquote, regular price, and think we're saving money and, you know, we're making a great deal um, when we're not. Yeah. Uh, I and, and relative. Go ahead. I think that's so fascinating because uh, where I'm out here in Los Angeles and there's a major brand called Macy's and my husband mm -hmm. and I joke 
all the time because it feels like every commercial from Macy's is like, newsflash, newsflash, we're having this big sale. I mean, it, they're just chronically mm -hmm. having sales, but it's such a great, uh, uh, you know, shortcut, as you say, like mindset trap, because you feel like every time you walk into Macy's, you're getting the most amazing deal ever. And yet everything is just always on sale. Yep. Yeah, there was... Uh, um JC Penney, which I don't know if they have it in California, but it's a, a big chain. They are like Macy's, that type of a of a department store. And they actually basically have a business model that is everything's on sale, same type of thing. And there's sometimes it's clearance and special deals and all that. And they've always done this. Um, and then they hired a new CEO some years ago who said, you know what, this is silly. Instead of having people come in and try to bring coupons and look for sales, let's just give them what the, the price is, the fair and square pricing because that's where they end up anyway, right? We inflate our prices so they can get sales to get to the real price. So let's just forget this game. Um, so we put in fair and square pricing and all of the customers left. <laughs> they just, they just, because they, they're like, forget it. We don't like this. And they ended up firing the CEO and putting back in this like Kabuki theater of inflated prices and deals. And everybody came back because like you said, you go in there and you feel like you're getting incredible deals and you're saving and you know, there's endorphin rushes and it's a game and um, it's just this, this feeling of, you know, relativity, like I'm being relatively smart compared to all the suckers that are paying full price. I'm paying sale prices. Um, even though what's really happening is you're paying the regular price, but you have that feeling. Um, now that's not to say that feeling isn't valuable. I mean, it's nice to feel good, yeah. but it's being aware of that, be understanding that's happening to you. Like all of the things we talk about the book, you know, we don't want people to be like penny pinching and like budget and freaking out about every spending. We just want them to be aware of what's happening so that they're making the choice instead of having the choice made for them. It's so fascinating too that the retailers are like, I have you figured out. I know how the mind works. And it it just it always like baffles me that we're so easy to read as the human species that this is the way we operate. We like to feel like we're getting a good deal, even if logically we're not getting a good deal but this is just the way we operate absolutely i mean i i've often said you can't change human nature but we can understand human nature so that then we sort of create systems or tricks or an environment so that we take advantage of our human nature for our own good instead of having others take advantage of it against us right? yeah. so if we understand that we fall for sale prices we'll be find some way to be more aware of that instead of always falling for them right yeah exactly i was going to ask you are there are there ways that we can win against this battle of sort of the irrational behavior when it comes to money or are we just all sort of lost ships at sea um, there are some tools and, and it's sort of encouraging that there are more and more um, tools being developed up out there. At the same time, there are more and more things being developed that seek to take our money. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, you know, the, the first step is, is recognizing a couple of things. One is recognizing these different traps that we fall for and for every individual recognizing sort of what's the big problem. Is it sale prices? Is it that they spend too much um, of their discretionary spending, you know, if they even categorize it like that too much, you know, going out to eat and, and buying shoes. Um, is it that they're not saving for retirement? Is it, uh, you know, that they have too much debt, whatever it may be, figure out what your particular issue is um, or issues and, and where it comes up. Um, and, and then you can sort of address that, uh, you know, for those that maybe have trouble figuring that out. One thing that we um, suggest doing is, looking at your monthly credit card bill 
and maybe all of your monthly bills and, and going through it with a friend, maybe not a super close friend, but someone who you can, you basically have to explain each item to. Wow. Uh, and you'll find that like having to articulate that is all of a sudden you're like, well, yeah, why am I buying this thing for $200 or why am I paying for $300 for cable and a cell phone when I just watch Netflix or, well, you know, whatever it may be, you'll start to see stuff that when you don't pay that much granular attention just sort of becomes automatic. Um, and that is ultimately this, this lack of attention is the real challenge we face. What what a great exercise to do. I mean, that sounds like mildly terrifying, but I can imagine <laughs> having to justify to somebody why you're spending certain amounts of money. Like that makes you really have to think about it in a way that you mm. don't have to when you're just pulling out your credit cards or buying things. Yeah, and I would say as as a word of warning, I um personally, and this is not scientifically, but I personally advise against doing that with a like spouse or a uh, partner yes. um, because there's a lot, there's a lot of things tied up in your monthly spending with uh, beyond just the numbers. You deal with someone who's disinterested. who's not like has no stake in the game. Um, That's a good point. Emotionally. You know what I mean? Uh, but, but you also touched on something else, which um, a, a moment ago, um, you know, none of us really do know what we're doing with money. Even those of us that you know, technically know everything about money. Um, like I'll give these talks to uh, like financial advisors, people that tell other people how to like invest and spend their money. And almost every time, if I do a group, someone will come up to me and say, our highest performer, the person that's best at telling others what to do with their money actually has the most personal mistakes, right? They are, have too much debt or they're over leveraged, whatever it is. Um, and the reason is because, you know, when you're telling someone else what to do with the money, um, like your disinterested friend, there's, there's no emotional stakes, right? It's, this is the, what the graph and the data says and the spreadsheet says you should do for your college savings and your retirement. But then when you talk about yourself, right, that's my kids and my retirement. And there's emotion and there's uncertainty and, and there's all of these things that come in to cloud the decision-making process. So even people that know, quote unquote, know what to do with their money really don't make the best decisions. Uh, and, and I tell people that um, because I think it's important Twofold. One for us all to like, sort of break this toxic thought we have that everyone else knows what they're doing and that we don't. I think yes. a lot of times we think we're the only ones that don't. Um, and the flip side of that is is to get people to find some way to talk about money and spending and savings um, more, whether it's with a friend, you know, doing the credit card or, or whatever it may be, because like you know, we as a culture and individually, we talk about how much we spend, right? We talk about like, I want getting a house and a car and seeing all this stuff, but we never talk about the positive side of money. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's a challenge because that, that, you know, community and communication is how we can learn, you know, better practices and better ideas. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's definitely, I've been doing this podcast for four years now and uh, I'm a certified financial planner myself. So I'm one of the first people to admit. And that was one of my sort of backbones of the podcast was to be able to be real about the mistakes I've made that mm -hmm. even having the knowledge that I have around money, it doesn't make me immune from those things, but then also share stories of people who make a lot of money, who's made a lot of mistakes and people who mm -hmm. don't make a lot of money, who've made the same mistakes to really show that we're so much more alike than we are different. There is 
no originality when it comes to money yeah. mistakes, but because we don't talk about money, it's this taboo topic. Suddenly we feel like we're isolated and we're the only one that has made this mistake. Yeah. And that's, that's not true. I mean, you know, there are, I just had a conversation with someone the other day about um, an executive at a, a TV network. I'm, I'm in New York and at a, a TV network. I don't want to talk about the details, but basically like he, you know, lost his 300 something thousand dollars a year job and he was super stressed out. Well, he'd had, a, he'd been making $300,000 a year for 15 years. By all means, he should have comfort and ease no matter what happens. But yes. He had been making money mistakes. <laughs> he hadn't, he wasn't ready for that. Um, so it's, like you said, it's not just the people that are scraping by a minimum wage. It's everyone, um, is prone to this. Uh, in fact, there's, there's a really, uh, a great survey. I'll, uh, maybe I'll, uh, send it to you. Maybe you can link it or whatever. Uh, that it was a survey that came out that showed that men, uh, I forget what the demographic was, but U S men were more willing to admit whether or not they use Viagra than how much they save for retirement. <laughs> that I believe. <laughs> and, and it's like, what's, well, but like, what's more embarrassing, your teeny tiny little ineffective savings account or your you other know, teeny uh, tiny uh, little exactly. thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, but we're just like, we're, it's like we talk about money, but we like don't really talk about it. Right. You, we don't talk about like how we think about it and the emotional side. And um, you know, my delusional hope with this book and the other things that I'm doing around this is to like give people the tools to understand, like to understand, you know, there's a term relativity, right? So when people think about sales and why they're doing it, they get, there's a reason, um, you know, I touched on, I didn't use the phrase, but there's something called the pain of paying how, when it's, you know, when we pay for something, it's painful, right? It's, it stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain. But what tends to happen with all the technology is we don't actually feel that pain. Like we don't, be aware like apple pay and easy pass and auto bill yes. pay and, and all these things are designed so that paying is easy but that means it's less thoughtful and less conscious and then therefore we spend more um credit cards are a great example they make paying like you know sort of painless you never you know you're never really paying you're sort of promising to pay and um you know again my delusion is giving people this tools and understanding uh will help them to sort of you know create their own little cocktail that will help them um you know do better when it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. <laughs> I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless. 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash etm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash etm. I'm sorry, but I have the best dog ever. Her name is Winnie Stardust. She is a mini golden mountain doodle full of life, and I would do just about anything to keep her happy, healthy, and safe. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of your family and you want to do the best for them, but vet bills can really add up. We jokingly keep telling Winnie she needs to get a job to pay for her vet bill. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customized accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping to ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you are least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash ETM. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash ETM. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash ETM. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independent American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer, is not engaged in the business of insurance. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. 
They release updates every two weeks, and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. We'll dive back into the episode after an Ask Shauna question, which again is a success story. I love that I am getting so many success stories from you guys because I feel like things are happening, things are shifting, things are getting better, or change is being made. And that just makes me really happy. Again, not that I have any part of that, but I just love being along for the journey. So this success story comes from Lori. And Lori said, Shauna, if you would have met me a year ago, you would not recognize who I am today. I was burdened by a lot of student loan debt, credit card debt, and really just a negative feeling around money. I have a good job. I make a decent income, but I don't know where the money goes every month. And I was so frustrated of feeling like I was continually borrowing from my savings and nothing was happening with my debt that I started listening to your podcast. And although it took me a few episodes, if I'm going to be honest, before I felt like, hey, you know what? I want to tune in every Tuesday and Friday and listen to your advice. I decided that this was probably a good thing for me to do. And before you know it, I started feeling better about my money. In fact, I started to talk to a few of my friends about the situation I was in, which I would have never done before had it not been for your podcast. I felt like we just had this conversation every week around money, and I was picking up tips here and there from all of the different conversations and from your episodes and your tips that something started to change with me. I started to feel like it was okay, the situation I was in, but more importantly, you showed me that if I just do one thing every day, maybe this situation would get better. So that's what I did. Every morning I woke up and I told myself, what's the one thing that I'm going to do today? And it started little. In the beginning, it was just thinking differently about my money or stopping for myself from feeling so depressed or upset or pissed off at myself about the situation I was in to things a little bit more proactive, like really thinking about what I was spending my money on and did I want to actually make that purchase or instead, what if I put that money towards my debt? What if I started to be proactive? What if I did actually negotiate my salary when it came time for my annual review? What if I did look at the subscriptions I was paying for that I didn't actually need? And I started to find money, just like you said. And I don't know why it surprised me because you said, and I quote, you can find money in your bank account. So I thought, well, she has to be talking to everyone but me except it worked and I found money. And at first it was $10 here, $25 there. And then it started to turn into a lot more money. And before I know it, I had made a sizable debt. 
in my debt. I had paid down over $5,000 in my credit card debt just between the middle part of last year and the end of last year. And I'm really happy to say that now, in the month of May in 2019, I am so close to being rid of my credit card debt and I have slashed my student loan debt in half. Seriously, you are just blowing my mind. I would have never imagined that this was even possible. And I have such a positive attitude with money. I just had to write you. I had to share the story. And I had to share it with anybody else listening so that they would know that their goal, big or small, is totally possible. And that if I can do it, you can do it. Thanks so much for all that you do. I'm going to keep listening to the episodes. I'm going to keep learning. And I'm sure there's a lot more things I can actually proactively do with my money. But this is a good start. Lori, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Again, I feel so honored to be able to have helped you in any way. I think what's so powerful about these stories to me is is not so much how much debt somebody has paid off or whether they've bought a house or whatever it may be. And of course, those are amazing goals that you're smashing right and left. But I think it's really the mindset piece around money, feeling like you can do this. You got this. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be an investing wizard or great at math, or you don't have to know the exact order for for all of your goals. But just waking up each day with that attitude of, I can do this. I can change one thing today. I can take one step forward really does point you in the right direction. And I know this because I have lived this. (laughs) I have been through my 20s where I was like, man, I got this. This is easy. Ton of money in retirement. Have a house. Everything is on the up and up. Have a luxury car. Like life is amazing. And then one day I woke up and all of that stuff was vanished when I went through a divorce and I was starting over and I had debt and I didn't have the house and I had the car, but I had massive car payment and I didn't have the retirement plan anymore. And it was a devastating moment. And I stayed in that moment for quite some time until I realized, okay, I can do this. So for me, I did the same thing every day. I woke up and I just did one little thing because I really needed to change how I was thinking and feeling about money because at that point, I was pissed off. I was so mad at myself, at the situation. So stuff happens. Life happens. Things are going to come up. Things are going to get bumpy. Things are not going to make sense. You're going to change career paths. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to get jobs. You're going to get married. You're going to get divorced. All sorts of things are going to be thrown at you. But if you can wake up each day and say, I'm going to do one thing today, that's going to really help negate any negativity that comes your way. So Lori, you're amazing. Keep smashing your goals. Keep that attitude in place. And thank you so much for hopefully encouraging somebody else to do the same. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm I'm in that same uh, delusion pool as you. So, <laughs> um, I have to That's ask fun. you. I have to ask you though. You say you're a a, a typical Princeton educated lawyer turned award winning comedian, which is very interesting. You're a best selling author and a champion for behavioral economics. Obviously, how did this all happen? How did you uh, launch down this career path and somehow end up at behavioral economics? Uh, I went to Burning Man two or seven times. And, and, um, <laughs> That'll do it, right? I did. Exactly. And I did it, by the way, I did it before it was cool, before there was Instagram models. And it was just me and my premature dad bod. And I was just, uh, anyway, uh, I, the more real answer is um, I went to uh, Princeton and I studied economics and I went to a good law school. And then I said, I don't want to do that. Um, in large part because like these traditional economic tools and even the legal like structures like they were great theory but it wasn't how people really were it wasn't how humans really interacted um so and perhaps less logically i i spent like 15 16 years as a stand-up comedian um (laughs) and i had i had some success there you know i got won an award got on tv made my living and it was great um and along the way i just started doing more writing i ended up writing for uh jim kramer the mad money guy he has a website called thestreet.com uh, I wrote uh, a, a weekly humor site uh, column on the site. Uh, and from that, then I got an opportunity to write my first book, which was a satire called Get Rich Cheating. Uh, I love that. Which was, yeah, it was all about, you know, what are culture values. And it was about steroids and Enrons and Bernie Madoff. And yes, uh, the current person in the White House, um, he was well represented a decade ago in the book. Um, and, you know, all these, these scams and, and it's basically about how money, the drive to be rich, like was causing people to be unethical. And, and, you know, anyway, it was, it had some success. It got me uh, sort of a little boost. And I ended up through that meeting this guy, Dan Ariely, who uh, he wrote a book called predictably irrational. He's one of the leading thinkers in the field of behavioral science. Um, I did a lecture at his class. I did it in character at the time I was doing like a tour, sort of a wealth building seminar. And the basic point was, uh, you should cheat uh, to get rich. Um, and, uh, you know, cost benefit analysis. No one was getting caught. No one's in jail for the financial crisis. And yet you can make millions, right? You're more likely to go to jail for stealing a piece of pizza than, you know, for, you know, ruining a whole company and people's lives. And um, it was, you know, obviously it was a satire. It was meant to make a point, the opposite of what I was saying. But what was fascinating to me was, you know, some of these Duke graduate business students, you know, top business students would be like, yeah, make an interesting point. Um, I was like, huh, hmm. this really does, this money is really a, um, it's a corrupting influence or less maliciously. It's just, it's something that because of so much uncertainty and emotion, like it, it, mess, it, it makes us have poor decisions. Um, and then I discovered, and I'm almost at the end of the story, <laughs> I discovered that that was essentially the field that Dan Ariely was working on was money and decision-making and emotions and he and his peers were doing. And I just sort of fell in love with it um, as something that provided um, sort of filled in the blank for a lot of the things that I had been looking for from the days of studying economics, to stand-up comedy, to, to cheating. Uh, and so I dug in <laughs> and we wrote this book and here we are. Um, now I, uh, I talk about financial decision-making and I run a website called People Science, which is about uh, you know, be these behavioral things applied more broadly. Uh, and uh, I talk to awesome people like you and hope to save the world. Yeah, that, that's that's great. Well, your, your your cape is in the mail, so uh, you, you should get that soon. <laughs> 
Awesome. Thank you. Um, I, I would love, you know, what you, what you talked about, the whole, you know, cheating and, and greed in the U.S. I've been working on a project uh, myself and really thinking about this wealth gap in the U.S. that is widening and widening and companies closing down and, and people just living so paycheck to paycheck now. I mean, it just feels like the middle class, that that's not even a word we can use anymore in the U.S. It's just, you know, people are stressed out about money. And it's just so fascinating to me because it's hard to peel the onion back and figure out sort of the, the, the root cause. But, you know, just from the research you've done, I, I'd love to know your thoughts about about this this wealth gap widening and, and people either feeling like they're in the bucket of having no money or there's the you know the top few that that feel like they have a lot and they're they're using not all but you know some of them are using greed and whatnot to compile even more money together there, there's a lot to unpack and to say about that so i, I won't i'm sure to solve, <laughs> i won't pretend to solve all the problems um of the world in in a couple minutes but i'll try uh, I think that um, you know American culture, in particular, and this is true in other cultures too, has uh, a a relationship with money that is not super healthy. Uh, mm. I think that we we place so much value on um, money as a marker of our value and worth as individuals, um, and we think of things like education in terms of like what is you know what's the average wage of someone who graduates from this college or what's the earning potential um and i think that that is uh unhealthy i think there are other things to consider and i'm um heartened that it seems like uh the millennial generation for all the uh bad press they get i think that they are more aware like of wanting experiences for instance is yeah. the big drive which it which is you know it costs money for experiences but it's not like i just want to get stuff um, but I think, you know, that being a good sign, I think that like when you're in a culture that places so much value on money and on wealth, um, and value, not just to show all my positive work, but also at the other end, the fact that like healthcare and, and housing, all these things, like you can fall into this pit, this, this vortex, if you don't have enough money to scrape by, like there's a fear at the bottom and the sort of an obsession at the top. And when money is such a key thing for status and for survival, um, then that leads to sort of perversions of what we value and what we pursue um, and and sort of what we're willing to trade in and, and give up. And, and just sort of our, we get a very myopic or very like self-focused um, view of things. So, you know, the person with the $300,000 salary uh, is, might still feel like, oh my gosh, if I, I need this money to survive. Right. Um, when a, a different view of, of sort of what they value and how they spend that money and what they think about might allow them to say, no, I don't, you know, I could live on 290 grand. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just our, our, you know, this is broad, high level stuff. Um, but I, you know, the, the obsession and focus on, on money as the number one marker of value is, is a challenge. I mean, look, that's, and some reasons why um, the man in the White House is the man in the White House. Everybody thought he's a great businessman and can make lots of money, and that's what they valued. There's other reasons, but that's one of the threads people would say is because he was a quote-unquote great businessman. But 
I don't want to open up that Pandora's box. That's a whole um, other podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, well, I, I mean I I love I love hearing people's thoughts on that because um it is such a pain point for so many people and uh it's just always interesting to hear hear people's thoughts on that, particularly people who have have studied the the behavior behind why we make decisions and how we value money and and all that good stuff. Uh, but you mentioned your new book, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. And first off, I would love to say I have a copy of your book and I love the dedication of the book. Um, I love that you dedicated it to money, which I thought was so clever. And you wrote, for the wonderful things you do for us, the terrible things you do to us, and all the gray matter in between. That's just such a great way, I think, to open a book about money. <laughs> But I'd love to know, you know, you talked a little bit about it, but are there one or two things or, or little chapters you could tease for us that are in the book uh, that might, you know, get us really excited about reading this book? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's, we talked about a couple of things I already mentioned, like relativity and the pain of paying. Uh, I think a particular interest might be, um, we talk about the impact of uh, language and expectations, uh, you know, how descriptive language uh, can can make something seem worth a lot more. Like the, I have a personal vendetta against the term artisanal. Um, <laughs> I see, I see it ever. I, I, there were, I was on an airplane, you know, those airplanes that sometimes like highlight local things, yes. anyway, whatever. I don't remember where it was, but they highlighted this place was selling artisanal moonshine. <laughs> that's that's a, you mean handmade, handmade thing. It was just it, infuriating, but artisanal, is a great example of a word that suggests a lot of effort went into something. Um, and a lot of times, like, you go and, you know, wine is a great example, like the descriptions of wine, like the tannins and all these things, and or, or restaurants that, like, have, like, describe where the cow was raised that produced the milk that then sat outside for 17.2 days. And all these sort of descriptive elements are there to make it seem like it's got more value because more effort went into it. And, yes. you know, understanding that power and, and, you know, that's not to say that it doesn't also make it more pleasurable, right? Like I'd rather drink wine um, in a nice candlelit restaurant with that, uh, with a French sommelier who makes it seem fancy than out of a cup in a gas station. <laughs> um, but again, being aware that that's what happened is happening. I think it is key. Uh, and, you know, especially as our ability to value things becomes even foggier um, you know, we develop so many services that are sort of in our hand, right on our phone. So how do we never see the effort? Um, these little like attempts at manipulating our sense of the fairness of the price, I think are going to grow. Um, and the use of language and imagery is going to be a big part of that. Uh, so, you know, I think for, for the future of what people are going to be dealing with, with money, um, that is important as is this idea of the pain of paying as, you know, spending becomes so seamless and easy. I love that because those are things that when we think about it, we're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Of course, we make buying decisions based off of those words and those descriptions. But it's not uh, necessarily something that we have top of mind. We just we just do it. So I think it's fascinating to unpack some of those things and to think about why we make certain decisions over other decisions and why we might buy something that costs more just strictly based on the words used. Yeah, it's um, it's crazy. What what I've taken great pride in is 
people that will reach out to me from uh, either having read the book or, or I give talks about this and, and everyone has a different particular little nugget that has resonated with them. Yeah. And, you know, I just like, I'm, I'm, it makes me happy um, because that's what I want to do. I mean, I, you know, Dan, my co-author Ariel, he was already a prolific writer and, uh, you know, a very a good writer, but I, I think he brought me on to make it a little bit more accessible to sort of happen in that background of, of, of humor and everything else. And, and I'm sort of, feel really happy when I hear that we were able to connect with pe- to people on these sort of high level intellectual scientific principles, but in a way that shows how they relate to their everyday life, their everyday of seeing a sale price or seeing a brand name or seeing artisanal hammers. You know? So <laughs> um, it's been, it's been a fun journey. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has been awesome. So many gems, but I, if you could leave us with maybe the most important thing you think we should remember about how we think when it comes to money, what would that be? Uh, I would say people should assess the type of spending and financial decisions that they do and um, know when they need to stop and think, know when they should stress and worry. Because what we tend to do is we tend to worry about the little spends, like, oh, should I spend 10 cents more for organic tomatoes? Um, But not stop and think about the bigger complex spends, like a $30,000 car, right? We may take a $2,000 add-on to that without thinking because it's hard to think about. The tomatoes are easy to think about, but we spend all our time. So, you know, when we're spending on small decisions, uh, don't worry about those that much. When we're spending on the big decisions, houses, homes, colleges, stop. And, and that's when you should pay a lot of attention and take the time and the stress and the worry, even though it's hard to do it, because those are the ones that really add up. And then there's this third category, which are like the recurring spends, like a cable bill, your daily coffee, um, car payments. Like for those, every now and then stop and think. Right. Don't just do it on automatic because you made the choice once, but every three months or four months say, hey, do I really want this six dollars for a coffee every day or am I really using my cable bill? Just every now and then stop and think about it because those add up, but don't stress about it all the time. So we want people to live a life, not just, you know, spending less and saving more and having financial freedom, but also just having enjoyable time. And if you're stressed all the time about money, even if you're saving, you're not going to be having a good life. So, you know. Think about those categories, small spend, big spend, and regular spend, um, and and put your energy in in the right places. That's awesome. Great advice. Well, tell listeners where they can connect with you again and how they can grab a copy of your book. So peoplescience.com is my main passion right now. So they can go and check out the articles there. And then uh, just at Jeff Chrysler, K-R-E-I-S-L-E-R. That is my uh, website, jeffchrysler.com, and my Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and I don't do Instagram, but that's where everything is. And, and through there, you can get links to my books and um, reach out to me. I'd love to hear any feedback anyone has or questions, uh, email, Twitter, all that stuff. Hey, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. It's absolutely free, and you'll make sure you never miss an episode of Millennial Money. You can also listen to all our episodes on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and Pandora.